I would say no less than 10 times during my elementary through high school years, no, no less than 10 times did someone come up to me to let me know that someone else wanted to beat me up, okay? Uh, and again, I'm lowballing it. I know that it, it's at least 10. I was trying to add this up. And for those of you who know me, this may not be a surprise to you, but I was in those days and still struggle to fight this uh, tendency of mine. But I was a bit of a provocateur uh, with the things that I would say. And the things that I would say would often inspire people to want to beat me up. I mean, I had, this wasn't a phrase then, but I certainly had a punchable face at that time uh, in my life. And it did happen as well. Like a few times I did, I, I didn't, I did get uh, the wind knocked out of me a few times. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm a wordsmith, but I'm not like a fighter and barely a runner. And so I couldn't always get away uh, from things. But there were definitely times where I had to go to school the next day with my face looking different than it did the day before. You know? Wow, just got quiet in here. It's okay. It's, I'm still here. And I, I got to tell you as well, like just so you know, like um, the yellow belt level in Taekwondo is no match for the ire of a redneck from DeKalb County <laughs> in the 1980s. So, okay, back to the sermon, so to speak. But that was definitely my childhood to some degree, finding myself in situations where I was being told by other people that somebody else wants to find me, take me out. It's a strange thing to know that you are on someone's list, that you're hated by them, that you're frustrating them and that people want to hurt you. It's a very strange thing. You may have a list of people like that in your own life or you may be on somebody's list. Probably both are true. Um, But that's a very weird thing to think about. Uh, And it is a reality. Uh, And when we enter today's story, we find the same kind of tense situation uh, with Jesus. These Pharisees come to him and they tell him in no uncertain terms that Herod wants to kill you. Now the question is, what is it that's bothering Herod? Because you and I, we think about Jesus and we don't think about anyone who would elicit that kind of visceral response from someone. And yet there's some history here. Well, the Herod that we're talking about is Herod Antipas. He is the son of Herod the Great. And when Herod the Great died in like 4 BC, his son rises to power and rules all the way through uh, past Jesus' death. He's not a king. He's a tetrarch. He's a governor in the Judean area. So there's a bit of like a chip on his shoulder anyway because Rome would not classify him as a king. But he does have some authority. Now, if we back up to his father, if you remember the Christmas story, Herod the Great, Herod Antipas' father, tried to kill Jesus as a baby. So there's some history here. Now, Herod Antipas had John the Baptist killed. Now, John the Baptist is not just a relative of Jesus, but was a close friend and also a mentor of types for Jesus. He was in, in, a, you know, in modern language, almost like a rabbi for Jesus. And so there's history here of tension, of stress, and even of violence from this person and from this person's family. There's a history here, and it's a history of tension and struggle. What's bothering 
Herod. But Jesus is tense about it too. We get a little glimpse here when Jesus' response is, go tell that fox. Is that not great? Did anybody else not laugh when that was read? Like I did, I was just laughing again. I laugh every time. But it's like, oh, we get a nice picture here of like the human side of Jesus and how he responds to this person who hates him and wants him dead. Go and tell that fox X, Y, and Z. Now the word fox here is unclear, but it's definitely not a term of endearment. Okay, whatever the case is, it's, it's not a term of endearment. Now what bothered Herod, and this is quite simple, but what bothered Herod and any leader in the Roman world at that time was any notion of a new kingdom, quote unquote, that would emerge within the empire. This is their job. Their job is to keep insurgencies at bay. Their job is to keep peace in a Roman way. And so any discussion about insurgencies or some sort of new society, they're red flags for those in power. It reminds me of um, the great classic film, The Search for the Holy Grail. When they're trying to recruit people to go and find the Holy Grail with them and the two French military people atop the castle say, we've already got one. Do you with me on that? And then he looks at his friends and goes, I told him we've already got one. Love that line. No one really thinks that line's funny but me. But, uh, but this is kind of the sentiment here. We already have an empire here. We have a structure that's working and we don't need any of your people doing anything different, just fall in line. And so any notion of a new kingdom emerging within the empire, that was a red flag. And what we know about Jesus at this time is that Jesus' fame, his platform, his influence is, is growing. He is known not just as a great teacher and a lover of people, but he is also a healer. And he is healing people of their physical, emotional, spiritual Ailments. I mean, Jesus has a lot of power and people are recognizing this. He's known, not just to the Jews around him, but to all sorts of people, including Herod. So Jesus' fame precedes him. And his idea of what society should look like, what God's people should display in the world, was a bit of a red flag as well. Jesus talked a lot about this kingdom of God, this kingdom of God being established on earth, this idea that there's an alternate society that functions differently than the world around it. If we just back up in the story, this is not part of the reading today, but if we back up just a couple of verses, notice what Jesus says here. Then people will come from east and west, from north and south, and will eat in the kingdom of of God. You can see Jesus widening the net of all people, the north, the south, the east, the west. They will all come together and eat in the kingdom of God. Indeed, some who are last, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The politics of Jesus is troubling because Jesus talks in terms of reversals and rearrangements. And that doesn't work in a system that's already in place. It's more red flags. So what's bothering Herod? Well, Jesus is bothering Herod. 
Jesus is bugging Herod. It's irritation to the system. We often think that Jesus didn't deal in politics, but he did. He said incredibly radical things about the way society should work and what God had in mind from the beginning and how we as people have messed that up. And Jesus comes along and starts talking quite often about this kingdom, this idea of a new alternate society that works differently from the world around it. And the scene here in this first part of the story is one of irritation. Herod wants you dead because you're a bother to him. But the scene shifts from Herod to Jerusalem. Jesus begins to lament over Jerusalem. I don't know if you picked that up as Tana was reading the passage. There's a sense of heartbreak for Jesus here. He's saddened by the city's inability to see what God is doing through him in the world. He laments that. Jerusalem is also Jesus' capital city. This is the center of worship. This is the place where the temple is. It is supposed to be uh, the city on a hill, the Zion of the world, that all of the nations would stream to Jerusalem. It has a calling as a city, and Jesus is lamenting over the reality that is ignoring that, that he is saddened by this. And Jesus sees himself as one of Israel's prophets in this situation, saying, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and those who are sent to it. It's an indictment of its past. This is what Jerusalem has done. The prophet's role in the people of Israel and the history of Israel was simply to keep calling Israel back to its roots of being the image of God in the world, of showing the world what it means to love people and to be the expression of God in the world, the grace and the mercy and the justice of God in the world. And so the prophet's job was always to call them back and say, we're not doing that. We're off track. We're worried about money and big houses and having more slaves. We're completely off course. This is why the prophets are so important in Israel's history. And uh, just like prophets today, they take on many forms when they call us back to truth and justice and all of these things that are core, we get mad at them. We don't like them. We hate them. It's no different in the ancient world. Jesus sees himself as being treated like one of Israel's prophets. Jerusalem, by the way, is not a wholesale. When Jesus uses the word Jerusalem, he's not talking about all the residents therein. He's talking about the shadow sides of the city. Not all who live there, but he's speaking of this murderous undercurrent that exists in this deep relationship between faith and politics. And so his lament is over that, but his lament is also over rejection. Why? Why does a city like Jerusalem in the days of Jesus lose sight of what it is that God is doing and Why can't they see in Jesus what we would say sometimes we see when we read the Gospels? Like, why can't they see that? I'll tell you why. And I'm only going to tell you what a behavioral scientist told me many years ago. And I'm just quoting the person. Everyone's behavior is normal to that person. 
everyone's behavior is normal in the eyes of that person. Whatever behavioral loop that you are in, it's the right one every time. We are the correct ones in how we think and act. As simple as people don't drive correctly, people don't use their phones correctly, people don't do social media correctly, people don't engage with the needs of the world correctly. I am, but no one else is. People don't do relationships like I do. People uh, don't engage with politics correctly. People don't handle their money the way I think they should handle their money. Our behavior is normal to us. But there's always this burning question that lives around us, which is, what if you're wrong about everything? It's not a question we like to ask. What if you're actually wrong about the way that you think everybody should live and the way that you're living? Even uh, the most recent example would be and, and I don't want to divide the room here whatsoever, so I'll try to insert some humor. But um, I think scientists, behavioral scientists, will look back uh, on the COVID years and have lots to say about how everybody thought they were doing it correctly. Right? I know you don't want to say yes or amen or nothing, but <laughs> it's true. Whatever it is that we're doing, that's the right thing to do. And it's, it, it, it's hard because that's what we do. That's how people are. Whatever it is that we think and believe, that's the correct version. I love the episode of Friends where um, Phoebe and Ross are arguing over evolution. I don't know if you've seen this episode, but Ross is a paleontologist. Phoebe's like a new age crystal person. It's a wonderful relationship. And they're arguing over evolution throughout the whole show. Where there's a scene where Ross comes in with this briefcase. And in it, he has fossils that are, quote, 200 million years old. And um, Phoebe says, look, I'm not denying uh, evolution as a possibility. And Ross says, it's the only possibility. And then Phoebe says, Ross, can you open your mind just this much? And then they have this back and forth and Ross kind of like closes his briefcase, defeated. And the best line is Phoebe's like, I can't believe you caved. You just abandoned your whole belief system. It's, it's wonderful. It's the only possibility. Could you open your mind just this much? This is not a sermon about evolution. Please don't email me. It's a story from a television show. <laughs> to illustrate the point that whatever it is we think is the end-all, be-all solution to all things and how we interpret the world, that's the correct version. This is why community is so important. This is why dialogue and disagreement and tension is so important. Peer review is the best way to live our lives of faith so that we are always in check and Jesus is staring at a city that has become, in its own mind, fixated on the correct interpretation of who Jesus is. And he's lamenting that. And our response is to, when this happens to us, our response to people who hate us, disagree with us, want us dead, or something less than that, 
is to dismiss them, to find a way to make them go away. But it's here that we find something quite remarkable in the story. Jesus says of these people, how often I have desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. I don't want you to miss the gospel in this story. Because as much as the story reads like the rap battle scene at the end of Eight Mile, it's actually a story of grace and this persistence that Jesus has towards those who need grace. The story is a tension between persistent rejection met with persistent mercy. And we have to see that, not just in this story, but in this season as we contemplate who Jesus was and who he is for us, that we, uh, when we read this story, when we see what Jesus is saying, at the end of it, he just says, I still long to gather you together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, the safety of her wings, even if you reject me. Paul says something quite remarkable in his letter to the Romans where he says, even while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Such a definition of grace that even in light of who we are, God continues to be persistent with his mercy. Is that encouraging? Amen. That no matter where we end up in our relationship with Jesus and how we're living our lives and where we end up in our relationships and on and on and on, there's this persistent mercy of God that keeps flowing towards us in so many ways. And so I close with um, the great Fleetwood Mac lyric, you can go your own way. This is really the message of the gospel. You can go your own way, but I will still die for you and seek you and love you until you get it. When you find your little dream Cost you everything I hope your broken bluebird heart still sings When you find the kiss it brings The holy aftermath Follow that blinding light down the crooked path Wind up here in an earthbound love song. I want to see you smiling on Sunday.